Hello, friends, and welcome to this latest episode of Witchcraft for the Restless. that it's been a minute since I posted the last episode. Um, I have far too many ongoing projects for my own good. But, I mean, that's kind of forced me to start scheduling my days for the first time ever. I've only ever followed schedules set for me by other people, like school or work, and never really tried to schedule my own time, like schedule my hobbies. For those of you who haven't scheduled your free time ever, give it a shot. It might really help you out. But I also know that I'm a creature of habit, and as that creature of habit, I think that if I can keep this schedule up for like two months, it'll really help me get into the swing of things and get into the swing of producing content regularly. So with that said, I am still unsure about how long it'll take to produce each episode with this new like schedule and um, recording practice, basically. But once I finish this one, I'll have a much better idea of what's, like, viable for me and sustainable. And, of course, if you want to help make it possible for me to create even more content sustainably, I would absolutely love it if you would join me on Patreon. There's a ton of monthly perks and some other fun stuff there. Um, And you'll get updates about a semi-secret project I have going on. It's going to be something for green witches and budding herbalists alike. And I think I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, but it's still like semi-secret. So join me on Patreon for more info about that. And of course, I'm going to have all my social links down below in the show notes. And yeah, so let's get on with the show. Um, this episode is going to be rather piecemeal. (laughs) Um, I don't have an overarching theme to this episode, but I have a bunch of random topics floating around in my head. And some ideas for some segments that could become recurring, if you like them. So, let me know what you think about each of these segments, and if you'd like any of them to be recurring and appear again. On to the first of our trial segments. This one is brought to you by my interest in figuring out ways to do magic with whatever you have at hand. I am not really a fan of witchcraft that tells you to go out and buy a whole lot of stuff. (laughs) Um... Or anything, really. I think that you shouldn't have to buy anything to be a witch or to do magic and to do really effective magic. And it's also inspired by um, New World Witchery. And I think Velma Nightshade actually had a similar similar segment on her show where they would pick an everyday object and sort of talk about how you could use it magically. And if this becomes a recurring segment, I'd love to take submissions for potential random items to talk about. Or if it's a themed episode, I'll pick a relevant object to talk about. For this episode, I am sitting in my altar as I record this. And I think I'll just choose something nearby, uh, like a crochet hook. All right. This one in particular is special because it was made by my childhood youth leader, Carolyn, back from when I went to church with my family. And um, she and her husband are woodworkers, and they make these awesome hand-turned pieces like bowls or cutting boards such like that carlon is actually the name of their business and i'll link their page in the show notes anyways um i use this hook in particular for enchanting my work with a really lovely 
familial slash platonic love energy, um, the kind of energy that I associate with Carolyn and that particular youth group of friends and my days with them. And since crochet is a rather important part of my life and it's an anxiety management practice for me, I almost always include a hook on my altar. It's a really simple tool, like just a stick with a hook at the end. But without it, it'd be like literally impossible to create the intricate things that we do with crochet. So it's just this simple, static, solid shape that lets us knot fibers together to create something functional or beautiful or both. And if you're like me, it's the actual act of creation and not the finished product that's important. The hook is the tool of creation. It doesn't have anything to do with the finished product. So that's why it's such a um, sort of special special to me, I guess. <laughs> so magically... Of course, you can use your hook as you would a wand. That seems like a really obvious use for me. Um, you can direct your energy with it, pour your energy into the crochet project you're working on, and use the, the crochet hook to really direct that energy. Or you can use it as a wand like without actually crocheting, of course. But if you are physically creating an item with your hook, you can choose your yarn fiber and color stitches and everything to match the energy and intent that you're pouring into it. So you can really double and triple up on your intent and um, choosing things mindfully to work into your enchanted crochet project. And of course, you don't have to have a special specific hook to work magic into your crochet with. Uh, mine just happened to have been a gift. And so that's what I use uh, most often for my magical work. And especially if your consecrated hook, like mine, it's definition time. This time it's consecrated. I use consecrated to refer to an object that I have dedicated to my magical practice, to the craft, um, and that I've sort of pledged to only use spiritually. In some circles, consecration is sort of viewed as changing an object from its physical mundane form to a magical spiritual form. Like it, they see it as literally changing the um, energetic structure of the object. And I don't really see it that way. I just see it as um, a tool that you've dedicated to your magical practice. Think of it similarly to how some people dedicate themselves to the craft, to witchcraft or to their path. Consecration is something that you can do to dedicate an object to your path and your craft. And of course, there will be people that use consecrated differently than I do, and that's awesome. But now when you hear me referring to consecrated, that is what I'm talking about. And especially if your consecrated hook, like mine, might not be the right size for your project. So the one that I have is a five millimeter hook. If I'm doing a project that doesn't call for five millimeter hook, I have to use something else. And that's completely fine. You don't have to use a consecrated anything in your magic. Uh, that's just how I prefer to work. And I have this one consecrated hook that lives on my altar and gets used when I have the magical project or something that fits its size. But otherwise, I've got a regular set of metal crochet hooks that I use magically. Um, it just happens that their case doesn't live my, on my altar. And even if you're not using your crochet hook specifically magically... I truly believe that there is magic in everything that any artist creates. 
So even if you're not specifically working magic into your crocheted project, I guarantee there's magic in there. There's energy in there. There's a little bit of yourself in there. Another way that you can put some extra magic into your crochet work and into that crochet hook is to write some sigils on it. Personally, I always prefer to make my own sigils. There's tons of tutorials online on, on different methods of how to create them and how to use them. So feel free to play around with some different methods and see what works for you and what ones you like. You can also anoint your hooks with any magical powders or oils that you have. Making sure to wipe off any excess oil and uh, sort of clean them really well, especially if you're going to be working with any synthetic fibers because acrylic fibers and other plastic fibers and oil really don't mix well. So just make sure you use soap afterwards or just stick to magical powders instead of oils. And of course those work similarly to how they would on a candle or anything like that. You're imbuing the crochet hook with whatever energy that magical powder or oil has. Oh, another way that I use crochet hooks in uh, my magical practice is uh, I'll use the really, really small crochet hooks as carving tools for carving into my candles. They just work really, really well. That's basically the only reason that I use them, but it's also fitting that they are a tool of creation. And yeah, so those are a few ways that I use my crochet hooks and my specific uh, consecrated crochet hook in my practice. And so that was an example of this everyday object um, magical uses segment. If you have any suggestions for other everyday objects turned magical that you'd like me to talk about, please let me know. You can always comment on my website at thebestlesswitch.com. And now I think it's time for our next segment. segment isn't even really a segment. Um, this is just something that has been on my mind and uh, I was thinking about it on one of my walks the other day and I recorded a voice memo about it. So thankfully this time I'm not forgetting to share my thoughts with you. Oh, you know what? I know what this segment will be. This segment is going to be my um, reference book, maybe? We'll see. We'll see about a segment title. This is this is going to be an ongoing thing. This is going to become a bit, me not having segment titles. <laughs> um, let's just call it the reference book for now. Uh, this is going to be segments that I will kind of refer back to from time to time. So sort of witchy 101. This one's going to be about correspondences and correspondence lists. So going forward in this podcast, I'll refer back to this segment um, for those that haven't listened to my podcast before and who might not understand how I'm coming up with correspondences and what I mean when I talk about correspondence lists and all that jazz. So in this chapter of the reference book, actually, you know what? I like that title. I'm going to keep it. Ooh, can I do some Foley work now that I have a nice microphone? I want it like a nice um, spine cracking of a book. Hold on. Ooh, we got some nice page flipping instead. <laughs> so correspondences. This is one of the most um, common sort of questions or curiosities or confusions that new witches and new practitioners or beginners to the field have. And that is, how do you know what to use for what spell? And by that, sometimes they mean how are correspondence lists even made? Like who decided that... 
let's say, clear quartz had an amplifying energy? Who decided that? Or another common question is just how do you choose? Because there are like a thousand things that mean love. How do you know what ones to include in your spell? Also, my apologies if you can hear something in the background. Um, Chris is watching Scream downstairs, and I can hear it up here. Not sure if you guys can, but if you hear anything weird, that's what that is. And by weird, I mean like screaming in the basement. (laughs) So, correspondence lists. And why I don't love to take them at face value. Like, I don't don't like to... um, reference a correspondence list and just pick things off of it without understanding why those things have those correspondences in the first place. And I encourage everyone to understand the whys behind those correspondences and also know how to come up with your own correspondences because a lot of everyday items aren't going to be found on a correspondence list. So knowing how to come up with your own correspondences is going to save you from thinking that you have to buy every little thing because that's what the correspondence list says. And it's just a really great skill to have because it hones your ability to um, sense the energy and kind of get in touch with your own, how your own energy interacts with um, the energy of that spell ingredient or object or tool. Uh, So this is sort of how I think of correspondences. I think of them as the energy that a specific item has. And so I'm going to use a red rose as an example because what actually got me thinking about this topic was um, Paige, the fat feminist witch, on her Valentine's Day episode. She she wasn't talking about correspondences specifically at all, but all the talk of red roses and roses and love and such – just got me thinking about um, correspondence lists because, like, that is such a such a staple to have on correspondence lists. Roses for love, red roses for romantic love. And it's also an example ingredient that a lot of people are familiar with. Everything has its own um, energy and what some would call life force, um, at least in my belief system. I'm just now beginning to sort of formulate a r- rather solid sort of worldview and belief system, but I guess the best way to describe it is vitalist animist, meaning I believe that everything, like every literal single thing, has um, an underlying energy. And so not only do, say, red roses all have an energy, each specific rose plant, and even further than that, each um, specific rose, each bloom, and all the way down until the smallest uh, molecule, smallest, even smaller than that, the smallest particle, all the way down has its own specific energy. And likewise, all the way up that chain, so the rose plant the specific species as a whole in that um, like bioregion and um, microbioregion and habitat and ecosystem that it came from, and all the way up further, the land it comes from and everything that went into making that plant, which means the entire earth, which means our entire universe. So again, this may sound a little bit more complicated than I'm meaning it to. Everything that we can perceive and even things that we can't perceive from as small and as large as we can imagine has its own energy. And so not only does a red rose as a symbol carry a specific energy 
due to the collective consciousness and all the meaning that humans have ever placed onto a red rose collectively, that sort of adds to the energy that red roses as a whole have. And so that means that all of the uh, correspondences that other people have given it and added to it and put on lists and everything, all of that is adding to this collective energy that the red rose has, um, adding to the context. And I think that that's the best way to sort of get an understanding for correspondences as well. When you see other people's lists, just add it to your context of that item or plant or ingredient or tool. Um, you're just building context and building a worldview here. And then uh, where it becomes more personal and uh, where you can add in your own life experience and, and see how your own energy interplays with that ingredient's energy um, is when you personally work with it and see how it feels to you. Um, and this is something that I think a lot of um, a lot of witches don't use maybe or don't understand or just haven't heard about before maybe. Oh gosh, that makes me sound like I think I know a thing. Um, this is just what I use personally. But a lot of witches view an item's energy as sort of fixed, like a red rose has a fixed specific effect that it will have on a spell or on a person or on yourself, like an unchangeable effect that it will give a spell. And in this red rose example, the most popular would probably be, this will add romantic love to your spell. But that's not sort of how I view correspondences. Like I said, I use correspondence lists to add context and I believe that um, since everything has its own specific energy, that means how that energy interacts with your own and with the other ingredients in the spell also changes and is specific, right? My view of, or I guess my um, thoughts on how energies affect each other are a little bit more alchemical in nature, so it's less like a red rose will always have a fixed certain effect and more like um, the energies of that specific red rose will interplay and mutually change the uh, ingredients and energy of those ingredients, other ingredients in the spell. And my energy going into it will also have an alchemical change, meaning like a mutual change and a mutual effect. So, for example, in this red rose example, I don't have a strong association with them as being romantic flowers. I've gotten a red rose once, and I mean, it was it was pretty romantic, but it's not like I associate red roses with grand romantic gestures. Um, for me, red roses, all roses really, are very much tied to my maternal grandmother. She passed away a few years ago, but she kept the most gorgeous rose garden I've ever seen. And I've seen some professional gardens, but um, she lived in Washington state and just had oh, the most gorgeous roses. So for me, red roses are very much a, um, they have an energy of obviously my grandmother's energy, but it's specifically fastidious and um, a little bit bossy, <laughs> I guess. Um, prickly, 
prickly would be a good uh, good term for it, which suits the rose just fine. But also very, um, you know, willing willing to show the best of themselves. Roses always show the best of themselves, even if they are a little bit needy at times. <laughs> That's how I view roses, and so that is how I use them magically. While, of course, I am aware that the sort of collective consciousness of their association with romantic love adds to that and is sort of um, added into the mixture there, the strongest connection I have with them is, is maternal grandmotherly. And this goes for anything that I might use in a spell or ritual. Another example of something that has a different connection for me than it might have on most correspondence lists is echinacea. Echinacea is probably the most popular immune-boosting medicinal herb, and it's most often used as a tincture, Um, so that means uh, like an alcohol extract. And it's uh, not pleasant tasting, and my biggest memories of it is my mom putting it in our orange juice almost every day when we were in elementary school and younger. And to this day, I drink orange juice, like plain, nothing in it. To me, it tastes like echinacea because that is like how strong my association is with it. So for me, if I'm going to use echinacea in a spell, it is likely it's going to have those sort of immune boosting barrier strengthening effects as well as this sort of nostalgic childlike energy or like that sort of strength and confidence and like sense of self that a a kid has that's also energy that's going to be brought in there so it's like sort of immune boosting that childlike sense of self protecting it and making sure that it remains strong within you but there are also ingredients that I tend to agree with most correspondence lists on Um, like peppermint on a lot of lists it is listed as Um, cooling, of course, and as um, lucky and money-drawing in a lot of cases. And I also sort of associate it with those things. But again, it depends on how I'm going to use it. Because if I'm using the rhizome of a mint plant, that is some curse right there. That is some cursing stuff. I correlate mint rhizome with cursing so strongly thanks to folk magic and um, historical uses and also just my experience gardening. So all of those things go into making the context that I view Mint through, and that's how I come up with my correspondences. So the biggest takeaway here is don't be afraid to personalize your correspondences and come up with your own, make your own lists, because how that ingredient interacts with your own energy and the energy of the other things you're using is the most important in determining how the energy of your spell will um, come out. And of course, there are other things that can play into the context that you build for each correspondence. Things other than other people's correspondence lists, of course, like historical context, uh, medicinal value, other cultural contexts, as well as, of course, your own personal experience and history with the ingredient or tool or plant or whatever you're referencing. (laughs) And this sort of ties in with um, how and why I don't really like formulating entire spells for other people. I really love making ingredients and things like oils and powders and such for other people. But um, when it comes to formulating entire spells, 
I think that it's so important for the person who it is for to be involved in the creation and the execution of the spell because their energy is going to affect it, right? And of course, this doesn't mean that you can't use spells written by other people, but I always recommend that you personalize them and make them your own at least a little bit because um, what worked for the person who wrote the spell might not work exactly the same way for you and might not connect with you the same way. So get in touch with your own energy and um, get used to feeling how other things affect it and make up your own correspondence list and personalize your spells. And so now that you can come up with your own correspondences for the ingredients, you can also work in the opposite direction. So come up with the intent, the thing that you need the spell to do, and come up with a list of ingredients that will work together to achieve that outcome. And this is sort of why my spells, and I think most spells tend to have more than one ingredient, you need the ingredients to work together combined to sort of hone in on the exact energy um, you want to create and the exact effect that you want it to have. Okay, so I just came up with a pretty perfect analogy for um, creating ingredient lists and rituals and everything like that. So picture the intent that your spell has or like the outcome you want to see as matching a paint color. So you're trying to make this gorgeous burgundy but you don't have that exact shade of burgundy just ready to go in your palette, you need to create it. Just like you might not have one specific ingredient that suits your intent perfectly, so that's why you need to create a spell using multiple ingredients. So you need to choose other colors to combine to create that perfect shade, and um, you might need a lot of red and just a little touch of blue and a little bit of even green to mute it down a little bit. So each ingredient you're adding is changing the whole. It's changing the entire thing. Um, it sort of becomes not of itself. It becomes part of that larger burgundy color. The blue that you added is no longer blue. You couldn't unmix it. And similarly, once a spell is combined and created, I believe that those energies are not of the spell ingredients individually. I believe that they come and form into a new whole. Um, I'm not sure if that visual, visual helped anybody, but it is sort of how I think of magic and energies affecting each other. So say you want to sever ties with somebody, but you don't want any, anyone to get hurt in the process. Um, there's not really going to be one ingredient that covers that completely unless you have like a really specific connection with something like that or your, or you know what, there is no should in magic. If this isn't how you work, then that's great. Um, but this is, uh, this is how I work. So I will, um, choose a couple different ingredients that achieve different facets of that end. But if you are a one-ingredient type of person, or even a no-ingredient type of person, that is also fantastic, of course. So for severing ties, I might do something involving scissors, but for mm, sort of soothing pain in the process, I might add something like cloves. This is just, this isn't, don't do this exactly, this is just off the cuff, but um, those two items, those two objects have a mutual combined effect that that is specific, right? So for another example, um, say you want a specific job. You might pick something that represents 
that job or that field that you're going to. Um, you might also include something that has to do with whoever is involved in the hiring process. You could include something that represents um, money and abundance to you, as well as maybe stability and something that ties it specifically to career. So these are all different things that you can pick and choose from to see if you have anything at hand that feels like those energies to you. And then you can formulate your own spells and you can create your own correspondence lists and reference those when you're making up spells. And all of this personal connection to the correspondences and the ingredients and the intent means that you will be able to be more specific and honed in on exactly what you want your spell to do. So yeah, that is a little bit about how I create correspondence lists and how I create um, spells and ingredient lists. And I hope it was helpful. And anytime that you share information about a plant or about something or about your own craft and your own folk traditions involving a ingredient or something, all of that adds to the cultural context and the um, collective consciousness and energy of that item. So I would love to hear about it. Please email me about it at therestlesswitch at gmail.com. Or you can leave comments. You might be able to leave comments on Anchor. I'm not sure. But you can leave comments on my website as well. So I would love to hear about your personal experiences and correspondence lists and everything. So thank you for joining me for this chapter of the reference book. And now it's time for our next segment. Welcome to the Restless Witch's Garden in the Shade. This segment will be garden updates and sometimes some gardening 101 or some witchy gardening tips here and there. Gardening is a really big part of my life during the growing season, and um, I've just started my seeds about a month ago, or at least part of my seeds. I'm a little bit past due for starting the rest of my seeds, but I have some seedlings that are um, off to a really great start. And so since it is seed starting season, I thought I'd talk a little bit about how to start some seeds for yourself. Growing food for ourselves is going to become only more important as time goes on. Right now, it might be important to grow your own food in case you are having to um, deal with quarantine or self-isolation or anything like that. And providing your own food or food for your immediate community can make a huge impact. So, um, seed starting. The first thing to consider when you're going to build your seed starting setup is your soil. I recommend just getting a commercial seed starting mix. My favorite brand is ProMix. Any ProMix soil will be fantastic for seed starting. Um, otherwise, for other brands, you're going to be looking for something specifically for seed starting. And that's because you want a really sterile mix. You don't want any chance of there being fungus or competing weeds or seeds in there um, or any diseases at all. You want to give your seedlings their best chance and um, a really good fighting start. If you tend to be an overwaterer, I suggest also adding perlite to the mix. You can add a quarter of the volume of perlite as you are using with your seed starting mix. Um, that can improve drainage. But personally, I just use the seed starting mixes as they are and just water according to when my plants look thirsty. So for seed starting, 
every sort of seed is going to have a different starting date. And typically for vegetables, it'll be listed as um, either weeks before or weeks after your last frost. To find your last frost, you can look it up online, your last frost date. Um, it just means the average date that your area gets the last frost of the season. And on each seed package, it will usually have listed whether you should start your seeds indoors a certain number of weeks before the last frost or uh, direct sow them outdoors. So there's usually at least those instructions on the back of the package. Sometimes it will also state the seed depth, but the general rule of thumb is um, you're planting the seed twice as deep as the seed is large. Um, so let's use a large example just to give an easy visual. A pea is about one centimeter round, say that's a large pea. Um, so that means you're going to be planting it at least two centimeters deep. So for really, really tiny seeds, that usually means they're surface sown. Uh, for medium-sized seeds, you know, that's like a quarter inch deep usually. And um, for large seeds, that's going to be deeper. So after you've chosen your date and you're all ready to actually sit down and start planting your seeds, and today I'm just going to be talking about um, starting your seeds indoors because it is not yet time here for starting seeds outdoors. So indoors, you've got your seed starting mix. You also are going to want something like a um, cell pack. And cell packs are what you'll see um, plant starts and plugs sold in, like those little black, usually black plastic packs that hold a little plug of soil. You can also use things like egg cartons. Um, they definitely are more uh, compostable, <laughs> definitely more compostable than black plastic. But personally, there are a lot, I find that there are a lot of mold and fungus issues and um, they hold too far too much water and also dry out too quickly. They're not great, especially not for beginners. Some beginners might have a whole lot of success with things like egg cartons or using like eggshells to start your seeds in, but it's just adding a whole nother layer of complexity and introducing potential fungus and bacteria issues into your seed starting mix. So that is, that's why I tend towards uh, just black plastic and reusing it for as many years as I possibly can. Just make sure to wash them really, really well between seasons, between growing seasons, just to make sure you don't have any carrying over fungus issues or disease issues. And next, you'll need something to keep humidity on your soil for when your seeds are waiting to germinate. If you're buying a cell pack, they usually come with a humidity dome, uh, a clear plastic sort of lid that fits over top. Other things that you can use would be something like saran wrap, and they actually don't even need light until after they've germinated, so you could use something opaque that is just going to keep the hum humidity in. But if you're using something opaque, make sure that you're checking back really frequently to see when they've germinated. And as soon as the first ones have started to peak above the soil, you need to take that cover off, that humidity cover off, and let that plant get some sunlight. And that brings me to lighting. Um, I use artificial lighting because I don't have any south-facing windows. And personally, I prefer artificial lights anyways because it's easier to control the amount of light your seedlings are getting and how close they are to the light source this way. So uh, that's just my preference. I have some LED just shop lights and they work really, really well for seed starting. They wouldn't be fantastic if you're trying to go all the way from a seedling to a fruiting crop, but for seed starting and for leafy plants, they work fantastic. And otherwise, I think that you are all set to start some seeds. You've got some lights, you've got soil, you've got something to plant into, 
Um, you've got a humidity dome or something to keep humidity in. And you've got your seeds. And from here on, it's going to be really, really general rules, rules of thumb, because each crop is going to be different and each plant is going to have slightly different requirements. Uh, I actually have a really great book recommendation for this. Um, it's called High Yield Vegetable Gardening by Colin McCrate and Brad Helm. They founded the Seattle Urban Farm Company, and I believe that they either create or fund uh, the podcast Encyclopedia Botanica. It's a great podcast about gardening. It's fantastic. Um, so that's how I found this book, but it is also just my favorite resource for anything to do with vegetable gardening, and that can translate really easily to other sorts of gardening as well. So that's a really great resource for planning your garden, and um, it also has planting instructions in there. It's like, it's pretty much an all-in-one really great gardening book. <laughs> and I'll leave that in a link in the show notes, of course. But general rules of thumb here. First things first, you're going to moisten your soil before you even put it in the seed cells. So in the bag itself or in a larger container or something. And keep in mind, it does expand when it absorbs moisture. So you've got your soil and you're going to slowly add water. And you want to add it a little bit at a time because you can always add more. You can't really add less water. You want to get it as damp as a wrung out sponge. And I know that... <laughs> It doesn't really sound like a good descriptor, but once you're sticking your hands in your potting soil and sort of feeling it, it will sort of hold together like wet sand, kind of. And then um, you want it damp enough to hold together, but not so damp as, um, like, you don't want any drips to come out when you squeeze it. Just lightly moist. And then once it sat there and absorbed some moisture for a little while, you can go ahead and um, put that into your seed cells. And you don't want to pack it too tight. You want to pack it um, about, I, I don't know where I heard this. This might have actually been from Encyclopedia Britannica, um, but I heard this somewhere. <laughs> you only want to press down on the soil as lightly as you would press down on your own eyelid, like when your eyes is closed. So like not a whole lot of pressure. This way you're avoiding packing the soil too tight and um, if the soil's packed too tight, the little baby roots can't get through and there won't be enough air circulation and they'll get rotted out really easily. And then plant your seeds at the right depth according to the seed packet and cover them lightly with soil, again, not packing down very hard. And then I take a misting spray bottle and mist over the top of the um, seed cells just to make sure that the soil comes in really nice contact with the seeds and they're nice and snug in there. And then I put the humidity dome on and I wait. And at this point, I already have my light timer set to being on for 16 hours a day. And um, that way, the very first seeds to pop up are already in the habit of getting their sunlight cycle really nice and strong. And as soon as a good amount of the seedlings poke their head above the soil, that's when I take the humidity dome off because you don't want to risk encouraging fungal growth and too much humidity means it's really easy for fungus to grow. And then all that's left is to keep the soil nice and moist at that same moisture level, not too wet. You don't want a whole lot of condensation on your humidity dome. And so yeah, just keep it lightly moist and give them some time. And so then you have some baby seedlings and that's the stage that I am at right now. I've got, oh, a whole bunch of things. I've got basil, I've got a whole lot of peppers going, um, onions, lemongrass, which is a new one for me, but so far it's doing quite well. I'm quite pleased with that. I've got oats for oat straw, oat straw tea that is, and then feverfew, chamomile, violets, a couple lavenders. My lavender seed was really old. 
word of advice, just use new seed. I don't mind when I have low germination, especially when the seeds were from 2015 or 16, I think, and I still got a few seeds to germinate. But yes, do be aware that the older your seeds are, the lower your germination rate will be. And then violets, echinacea, and yarrow. And the things that I'm a little bit behind on planting is the rest of the vegetable garden. New things this year for me will be a bean structure. Um, so like a little bean house. And hopefully I can build one tall enough for me to actually stand inside to harvest the beans. And I'm also going to put more emphasis on winter squash and melons this year. Most other years, tomatoes take precedent and take up most of my gardening space. And so that means larger crops like melons and winter squash sort of get shoved to the side and then end up just not really producing because they don't have enough space. So this year, I'm going to give them a little bit more space and room to roam and start them a little bit earlier, I think. And we might actually have a really early spring this year. Um, today's the first no jackets required day, and it is only... What day is it? March 16th? And usually at this time of year, we're still getting the occasional ice storm. So um, I'm not sure what's going to happen with this year's growing season. Maybe it'll be extra long or maybe we'll get some freak ice storms and really unseasonal weather in April like we sometimes do. But yeah, for right now, I'm starting seeds at the usual time, if not a bit late. So we'll keep you posted. And that's it for this bit of the Restless Witch's Garden in the Shade. I think it's called that because my garden is mostly in the shade, which is mm, not my favorite thing because I like to grow a lot of full sun crops. But they do their best. And um, I think that's kind of what garden witching is all, all about. Doing the best with what you have and producing more than you thought possible with what you're given. And now for our next and final segment... Ointment, salves, and liniments. Topical witching for our times. I'm going to try and keep this segment in particular short, at least for this episode. This is going to be where we talk about current events and things that are topical and happening right now. And of course, you know what I'm going to talk about. This is COVID-19. Um, one of my biggest clients, actually my biggest client for my day job is self-isolating and a few more of my clients are um, working from home but my job sort of relies on them actually going to work which I really wish that no one had to do I wish no one had to work right now of course um, but we have retail workers and healthcare workers that are going to work and being amazing so I'm a dog walker for my day job so that means that people going to work is what gives me work <laughs> And just like so many other small businesses right now, um, of course, of course, I'm suffering a little bit financially, and I'm sure that a ton of other people are too. And I actually had a really, really bad anxiety week last week, so the week before the schools closed here. But this week, I'm actually doing quite well. I'm not sure if it's because there's a real life thing to keep my mind occupied, and when I'm doing well, I try to give myself some very good advice that I will hopefully follow when I am not doing so well. Anyone who knows me pretty well knows that I love Alice in Wonderland, and this practice sort of was inspired by that movie, or at least a line in that movie. In that one song where she goes, um, 
I give myself very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. Has been sort of um, my refrain to myself, only I want to actually follow most of the advice I give myself. It doesn't work. Usually I don't follow it. Usually I'm just like Alice. But so now that I'm doing okay right now, (laughs) I thought that I would give some advice on how to stay okay and maybe get okay if you're not in a great place right now. Yesterday, I was sitting by the window smoking, as you do, smoking a nice bowl, and a couple backyards over there was this kid all by himself swinging on his swing set, and he was just swinging rhythmically at the same exact tempo for at least as long as I was sitting there. He might have been going for hours, who knows? And I have very clear, clear memories of doing the same thing. I would, air quotes, run away to my nearby school grounds and swing on their swings for just like hours, like doing doing nothing in particular, just thinking and and swinging. And I kind of want to get back to that. So I think that we should take some time to maybe swing on a swing set if you can, or just some time to get outside or inside if you're unable to get out and do something physical, um, something that can act sort of like moving meditation, which is just some fancy words for doing something physical while letting your mind do whatever, or letting your mind just be present and focus on what you're doing. And people always emphasize, like, we need to teach our children to meditate and things like that, but kids are already really great at clearing their minds and just letting the go like that. Like, kids are great at that. I remember being fantastic at that. And I think that as humans, that is a natural thing for us to be great at. But somewhere along the lines within society and living in the world how it is right now, we're sort of forced to lose a bit of that skill in order to function in our society. So do something physical outside if you can, away from screens, turn your phone off if you can, um, and just uh, find a swing set and swing for a bit. And then wash your hands. (laughs) Oh, another really great thing to do uh, while we are in social distancing mode and some of us are in quarantine or self-isolation is get in touch with your house spirits or land spirits, the spirits of place, the things that are particular to your area and your home and the land that you live on. I've been working with my house spirits for only about a year now, actually, um, but they've actually become one of my most parts of my craft because I didn't really have a an offering practice a daily offering practice before this I didn't have any any spirits or anything that I was working with on the regular like that so it's new and I really enjoy it and it's lovely so do some hearth witching and some spirit work and get in touch with um with the spirits of place and the spirits of your home and I think that's going to be it for this episode of witchcraft for the restless Thank you all so much for listening. If you would like more episodes, because I know I'm not posting as frequently as I would like, so I imagine it's also not as frequently as you would like. If you would like to help me post more frequently, please become a Patreon at patreon.com slash therestlesswitch. And I also have open commission slots for crocheted items. I love making custom work, um, altar cloths and tarot pouches, and I just made a really great dice bag for a client, and I think that it suits her character perfectly. I'm really excited about it. You can check out my Etsy shop for um, my crocheted work. The shop is called The Restless Witch as well. I'm The Restless Witch on almost all platforms. Speaking of other platforms, you can find me at The Restless Witch on Tumblr and Instagram and at Restless underscore Witch on Twitter. 
You can see all the show notes and everything else that I post on my website, therestlesswitch.com. And you can book tarot readings with me through email at therestlesswitch at gmail.com. The music in this episode was Ophelia by Les Hayden from the album Proverbs. And I think that that is all of the things. So I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy and helping everyone else stay safe and healthy by practicing social distancing. That's something that's really, really important to me and many other people. And all of the elderly and immunocompromised people can definitely hear you when you reassure people that um, that they're the only ones that are at risk of dying from the coronavirus. So just don't do that. Don't use that as like a reassurance tactic. That's weird. And that is by far enough about coronavirus. So I will leave you with that and I'll talk to you in the next episode. Keep on witching restlessly and I'll talk to you in the next one.